When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. I'm Barney Hoskins and my co-hosts are Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. And Jasper Mirison Bowie. Hello, Barney. And for this episode, we are delighted and honoured to welcome as our guest, the legendary Chris Blackwell. Hi, Chris. Hi. Hi. Thank you. Hi. Chris needs no introduction. I need only say the magic words, Island Records, and you will know the label that was home to Bob Marley, you two, Grace Jones, Traffic, Tom Waits, and far too many more famous names to mention in a roll call now. Chris, you've now told your extraordinary story in an autobiography titled The Islander, which you wrote with Paul Morley, who was a great guest on this podcast last October. My first question to you would be, how did you decide what to include in the book and what to leave out? And did it in the end come down to personal tastes? Well, I mean, I may as well come through with the truth (laughs) as a good start. But basically, Paul Morley wrote it all. So you're you're absolving yourself of all responsibility for this book. Yes. Yeah. yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, is that why there's no mention of Emerson, Lake, and Palmer in the book? <laughs> I think Emerson, Lake, and Palmer was just a, sh- a short period of time, and I think it just wasn't a good match for Ireland and, and them, and that was it. So it was just a very short period of time with them, okay. even though I knew them because one or two of them lived in the Bahamas at one time. Oh, yes, that's right, isn't it? Should we go back to, you know, your early days and how you fell in love with music? And particularly, I love the things you write in the book about Harrow and flip-flops and your accident, (laughs) and your self-confidence. There's a wonderful bit where you say, one thing I could do very well at the time, we're talking sort of late 50s, early 60s, given my background and training at Harrow, was pretend that I had complete (laughs) Um, (laughs) self-confidence. I think Boris Johnson probably could say the same thing of his public school education. (laughs) (laughs) Well, no, that's... True, I guess. You know, I just didn't do anything along the line of what somebody normally does when they're growing up. I think mainly most of that was because I was very sick as a child. And I I think that was really it. So I was sort of free form, if you know what I mean. I didn't, I wasn't particularly disciplined or anything, but I wasn't 
bad behavior. I wasn't a bad behavior person. I can't remember really, except that I was just interested in whatever I saw and heard. And if it was something that I kind of like had a feel for, I'd get closer to it. And if it was something I didn't, I'd get more distant from it. Yes. Are you wearing flip-flops now? Well, actually, I'm, I'm not wearing flip-flops now, but I'm wearing some extraordinary shoes, which um, I can't show them on TV. <laughs> well, it, it's better for us to just imagine them. But I love the idea that flip-flops were a sort of statement of rebellion against your power education. There's, a, there's something you say about when you came to London, you were a very different sort of manager. And I'll quote from the book, I suppose as a hybrid of white Jamaica and elusive English public school, I presented an unusual image to many in the business. And I came across, unlike most other managers and record company bosses, whether the old school type or the new breed who were looking after the Stones, the Who and the Kinks. Did you feel very different, for example, coming into the English pop business in 1962, Chris? No, I didn't. I just came in from Jamaica with my Jamaican records, which I used to hustle around the periphery of London. Through that, you know, I mean, I, I ran into Mick and them, and I just ran into them because, you know, everything was sort of happening at the same time. It was a an incredible period in general because it wasn't just what was happening in my life and how things were evolving. It was happening all over the country. I mean, for example, when I first came over, in a very short period of time, anybody who was a black musician of any nature would somehow maybe get in touch with me because, you know, they heard that I'd come to England and that I was starting this record label and putting out these Jamaican records. There was one day there was somebody called, um, and this is where you're going to have to edit on many occasions because my memory switches right off. So I'll just just have to you'll have to try and try and fill that in for me. <laughs> but there was the guy who from just on out of the skirts of London, who started a band. And I can't remember what his what the band was, but somehow I got attached to them. And I, I, I tell you the reason why, because he rang me and he asked me if he could use the three South African girls who I'd brought, or who I'd not, I didn't bring to England, who I met in England. They had come over to England for a musical which had started in London at that time in 19, I guess it was 62. He rang me and asked me if I could lend him these three girls to go and sing in the show they were doing at, uh, what was the name of the, of the club in Wardour Street? The Marquis. The Marquis, thank you. But for a period of time, the Marquis was on Oxford Street also. So it was on this situation where I took these girls to the show and this was Cyril Davis who had contacted me and was doing a show there. And when I went there, the first opening act, the opening act there was a band called the Rolling Stones. And I'm not sure if they were called the Rolling Stones, but it was the Rolling Stones. It was Mick Keith, 
and the drummer, particularly the drummer, I remember. And then these girls came afterwards to boost up Cyril Davis's show, as it were. So that's the first time that I saw the Stones and I, and I went down to the dressing room and said to Cyril Davis, I said, these guys upstairs are fantastic. He said, oh, they're rubbish. And I said, no, I think they're fantastic. And then one of the guys said, yes, well, you know, they asked me to be the drummer. And I I didn't want to take it, so I passed them on to Charlie Watts. And and that's how, you know, I first encountered the Rolling Stones, which was from that show. Fantastic. Should we talk briefly about Millie? I know Mark was an early admirer of Millie and My Boy Lollipop. My Boy Lollipop was the third record I bought with my own pocket money at the age of eight. And I had cut out her picture from Fabulous magazine and pinned it on my wall in my bedroom at home. And at night, her eyes would follow you around the room, which spooked me (laughs) no end. But it was the beginning of a very long relationship I had with what became Island Records, absolutely. And so it was, it was a very important, important thing for me. Oh, wow. Well, that's great. Well, when I started in Jamaica, I really connected with all the sound systems. I mean, one by one, I just started to become friends with them. And, you know, I was a kind of an odd person because I was the only one of my complexion, you know, wandering around in that world which was pretty much all black Jamaicans, though the Chinese were very important in the beginning of that whole music scene in Jamaica, believe it or not. There was a, there was a three or four different Chinese record stores, even more, and I used to go and deliver to them early on, et cetera, et cetera. So when eventually... I decided after I was starting to get some success with the records in Jamaica and then with the ones that I'd I'd send them over to England, they were distributed by a label, which was, there was a jazz label, which also were releasing Jamaican records then. I can't remember the name of that jazz label again. And also, I can't remember the name of the, <laughs> the, the people who had a, li- a label, a, a little small label, who I went to see. And I bought, I remember for 30 quid or something like that, I bought from them the list of record stores around the periphery of London. And that's really how I started. So I'd wandered around the, these stores, presenting my records, etc., And, you know, it started to happen. You know, people started to be pleased to see me when I turned up. And I started to feel that, well, this is great. This is exciting. I think we're getting somewhere. Talking about the Chinaman aspect, in one of the articles that we are featuring this week, which is Maureen Cleave's article on uh, Scar and Bluebeak from the Evening Standard and 
1964. She talks about Prince Buster bemoaning the presence of the Chinese and everything. Prince Buster was once furious with a man called Derek Morgan, who left his employer to go work for a Chinese competitor. Prince Buster promptly sung a, a very insulting song called Blackhead Chinaman. It went, are you a Chinaman? <laughs> are you a black man? <laughs> that's brilliant that's brilliant well you quote from that piece in the islander chris and maureen says i got the story the story of scar and Bluebeat, from a rather handsome young man of 26 with reddish hair called chris blackwell he comes from jamaica and arrived in this country two years ago since when he has released over 200 jamaican records so that that's a <laughs> lovely piece to be adding mark i'm delighted yeah. that you've added that this week i was really interested to ask you chris when you what really lay behind the growing desire to well to start a label and then for that label to become what it did become and, and what we know island records to be now there's a, there's an interview with richard williams who was a melody maker writer who worked for you at island and in it, you talk about Atlantic Records particularly and what a role model Armit Ertegen was for you. And you were very, very interested in Atlantic Records from a pretty early age. Is that fair to say? That's 100% right. And right beside that was uh, Blue Note right. because I love jazz. You see, I, my roots were, because as I said, I was sick and I was looked after by staff and nurses and stuff like that all of whom were black Jamaicans. So, I mean, I really grew up completely with black people around, albeit that they were staffs, gardeners, housekeepers, etc., etc. But I became very fond of them and very aware of the fact of the luxury that I was living in and and how they were living in. And that, that was the thing which I think was drove me from day one, honestly. Yes. yes. You must have been very upset by the treatment here accorded the Windrush generation, particularly in the last, well, when you first arrived, you witnessed that and you talk about that in your book. But what's happened in the last, what, five, six years, the hostile environment, it must have been very upsetting and repellent to you. Yeah, it was. It absolutely was. But, I mean, it's not that one wasn't aware of how that was happening in different parts of the world. Yeah, of course, of course. I was really intrigued in the book to read what you wrote about, of all people, Peter Grant, because the, the implication is that he had quite an impact on you, despite his sort of rather thuggish reputation. You say that he could see where you know, pop music was going. You know, rock was going from sort of, if you like, Mickey Most, the Mickey Most era, and you worked in the same building as them, into the Led Zeppelin era. And indeed, you nearly signed Led Zeppelin to Ireland. So what was it about Peter Grant, of all people, as I say, that, that sort of got your attention? Well, you couldn't avoid him. He was huge. <laughs> <laughs> he was huge. And um, he was fun. And he was dangerous, <laughs> all in one human being. Um, so um, I don't know. I got on with him. I liked him. I actually first met him when he was at a 
It's so difficult for this because I I, I remember, remember things that happened, but I can't remember what they were called. <laughs> so, for example, <laughs> you know, that, like like he was on the doorman of a show in South London is when I met him. An American like... Gene Vincent? He, tour, he was a tour manager for Gene Vincent, I think. Could have been Gene Vincent, yes. Mm. Could have been, or, or, or somebody from Chicago. I find... Peter Grant, very interesting, because he was originally employed by the Don Arden, is that correct? He was tour manager for various Don Arden promotions. He saw Don Arden's tactics, which were vicious and nasty. But when he became a manager himself, he directed that viciousness and nastiness at what he perceived as the enemy, which is the record companies, the promoters and so on, whilst defending his artists in a way that Don Arden never did. So Peter Grant understood the importance of the artist. Yes, he did, for sure. No question about that. The book also features interesting portraits of people like Guy Stevens and Jimmy Miller, and you get a very vivid sense of the label moving into into this new era. You you talk about some sense of a new island sound materialising, soul and blues mixing with prog and psychedelic experimentation. And so we're thinking about Spooky Tooth. You even say that Jethro Tull in 1968 was was a crucial signing for Ireland, even if we don't think first and foremost about Jethro Tull when we think about Ireland records now. Did you sort of know intuitively that Ireland was, was going to have to start working with these sorts of bands that sort of, you know, clearly like reggae and even just the Spencer Davis group, this was not going to be enough to get you to the next level, Chris. Well, I wasn't, strange enough, I wasn't really trying to be a big company or anything. I was working with anybody who I connected with, who I felt that I could bring something to the table, as it were, either in terms of my enthusiasm But it wasn't that I was telling them pretty much what to do or what not to do. It wasn't like the normal kind of record business, you know, where somebody would, you know, beg to get signed and and that kind of thing. The people that I worked with, it just sort of happened by a lot of different opportunities that just opened up and uh, that I felt that I could contribute in a way and how could I contribute really nothing more because I can't play anything or, or do anything like that. It was just more how I felt that I could bring them some, I don't know, whether it's self-confidence or bring them, you know, I was never really um, telling them what to do. So I wasn't like a real proper, really good sort of record company guy, really, who could train somebody. That wasn't my thing at all. It was just I got a if I if I got a feel with 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 somebody, I felt that I could contribute something. And um, if that I got the same input back from them, then one sort of connected and it worked. Yes. You know. How important was Steve Winwood to you? Steve Winwood was all important. Steve Winwood, what can I say, was all important because up until Steve Winwood, my world was totally black music. Mm. Then, you know, one day I went to Birmingham. Somebody had called me 
whose name I should know very well because it was a very important call. I would not have met Spencer Davis Group at that time if that guy had not called me because he called me and he said, you should come up to Birmingham sometime. And this was after Millie had her hit. So, and I said, okay, I'll come up because Millie's supposed to do something at, I can't remember what the TV show was called. Thank you, Lucky Stars or something like that, I think right. it was called. And I said, I'll go up with with Millie. And after that, I'll come down. If you meet, meet me at the uh, theater, I'll come down and we'll meet. So I took Millie with me. And I saw one band. He took me to see one band. And I didn't really like it because I didn't like, you know, I'm sort of a jazzer kind of, if you know what I mean, a sort of kind of rather sloppy kind of jazzer kind of a person. So to <laughs> me, I, you know, I didn't like anybody in a uniform. You know, I didn't, I couldn't have been less interested. And the, there was this band which was dressed up smart in the uniform and I didn't feel it at all. So... Then the person said, okay, well, um, let me take you somewhere else because there's another band, but I don't know what you'll think of it. And I said, okay. So they took me to this other location in Birmingham. I remember getting out of the car and walking into the house that it was and started walking up the stairs and I heard this music and I thought, my God, this sounds really good. And then, you know, that was on the first floor and they were going up to the second floor. I thought, I can't, I can't believe this. This, this guy, I, I use the expression, he sounds like Ray Charles on helium because helium <laughs> af- affects your tone. You know? Yeah, pitch, yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> pitch. And when I finally got to the top, there, there, there was this youngster sitting at a keyboard. It was incredible. He was playing piano. Then he was playing organ, then he was playing guitar, and then he was singing all at the same time. There was Spencer Davis and Steve's brother and a drummer. That was it. And I thought, I, I can't believe this. This is really, really unbelievable. Now, in those days, the large record companies, they, they, nobody would go out looking for bands. They would be in their offices and people who were sort of traveling around, sort of agents and things like that, would tend to look for the bands and come in to the record company to see if they would pick them up. In my case, I said to the band, I said, listen, I, I'd love to record you guys. And they said, well, we'd love to record you. And I said, well, I could get you in the studio in a couple of weeks. They said, you, you can't get us in the studio. I said, yes, I can. Of course I can. <laughs> so Fantastic. that's what I did. And they kind of couldn't really believe it. So that's really how I signed them. Simple as that. Exactly the same story. I saw that. I heard them. And it just happened like that. And then it just evolved from that and grew from that. You know, Winwood just became bigger and bigger and bigger. And he was a real sort of leader. And it changed the identity of Ireland a lot yeah. because people then thought, oh, well, this label might be worth going to see if we could get a deal, you know, yes. that kind of thing. 
I'm also posting this week a very amusing Richard Green interview with you from The Enemy in 1969. And you're talking about traffic, Stevie Ward's next band, and the volatility within it, how Dave Mason would come and go and come and go. And you say, it got a bit of a joke. One week there were three of them. Then then the next week there were four. You had to keep diving into the dustbin to find the photographs you'd thrown out. Then the next week you'd throw them out again. That's <laughs> <laughs> just fantastic. That's fabulous. That's fabulous. I just wanted to touch on folk, Chris, for a second, because there's a, there's a great when you talk about John Martin, who you signed in nineteen sixty seven. You say I was vaguely considering the idea of expanding the breadth of Ireland's roster, though not as far as signing a Scottish folk singer. And then you say but I did because I couldn't resist the fact that it didn't seem to be what I should be doing which I love <laughs> it's a double negative um, and I love that it's just like well I probably shouldn't be doing this so I'm going to do it and I wanted to sort of jump forward 10, 10 years from that when you first signed him in the London conversation I'm come because I believe um, correct me if I'm wrong where you are sitting the house that you are speaking to us from in Berkshire is where at least some of John Martin's album One World was recorded. Is that correct? There's the famous song Small Hours, which was recorded on one of the lakes very near your house. Is that correct? Well, it's recorded right. I I can look and see where I am right now, where it was recorded, and I can remember it. Oh, wow. wow. And I remember how emotional it was to me. It was like tears in my eyes when it was being recorded. It was pure magic. one of the most beautiful pieces of music ever recorded I think and Hmm. you write beautifully about John I mean you say his life was a bit of a mess by 1975 and then you say so I suggested he he go and stay at my place Strawberry Hill in Jamaica (laughs) and I introduced him to Lee Scratch Perry he said that was perhaps one of the most irresponsible things I've ever done (laughs) (laughs) but also one of the smartest decisions because out of that (laughs) you know, indirectly came the One World album. That's right. And so, you know, I mean, we're all, I think I can say safely, very big yes. John Martin fans. And Solidaire is absolutely in my sort of top 10 of albums. Full yeah, stops, Solidaire you know. is wonderful. And One World, that small hours, it's just, as you say, it's just a magical, magical yeah. moment. It's it's just some amazing, amazing music that was made by him. And you Steve Winwood's on that, isn't he? Steve Winwood he is playing, yes. he's playing yes. the, the mini moog or something. It's wonderful. <laughs> yes. There's a part in it where I think the train goes by, you can hear it in the yes. distance. <laughs> <It's fine. laughs> I mean, yeah. it's, 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 one thing is that, let's say, traffic would probably... You know, I was about 11 years old when traffic emerged, and there was a sense this was something different. This was early British psychedelia of a certain certain sort. And then that led to this extraordinary golden period when, whether it was King Crimson, whether it's Free, whether it's later on Roxy music, it seems that Ireland seemed to produce just great record after great record. I mean, you must, must have been pretty thrilling at the time, mounting the stallion of a beast of record company. Well, I was lucky but I, I listened to people mm-hmm. you know 
I mean, I have no skill set myself, but I listen to people. And there was somebody, again, who I should know very well, because he was an extremely tall guy. I remember that. And he told me, there's this young band that you should go and listen to, and they're called Free. And I said, I don't like the name Free at all. I mean, Free, (laughs) I mean, that that seems that you get a free entrance into the show and everything. (laughs) (laughs) And um, anyhow, I followed what he said, and I went the next evening to the marquee, and I heard them, and they just totally blew my mind. Firstly, they were really young. Mm-hmm. I mean, the leader of the band, I think, was 15, maybe maybe 16. Who was the leader again? Well, I think you're talking about Andy Fraser, aren't you? Andy. Andy yes. was the leader, yeah. Funky bass player, very funky bass player. <laughs> so I went to see them, and I thought they were fantastic. Mm-hmm. And, and I said to them, look, I love you guys. I want come around tomorrow to the office, and let's talk and see if we can figure something out. So the only thing I didn't like is that I didn't like the name Free because I thought (laughs) this is going to be a problem because, you know, you're not going to get paid. (laughs) By by when when the show starts, you know, people will think it's free and all that kind of stuff. That was the only thing I was concerned about after seeing them that evening. And then the first thing the next morning when Guy Stevens came into the office, he was working with me at that time, and Guy Stevens was a genius. I'm sure you guys know mm-hmm. him. Oh yeah, we even yeah. have his writing on Rock's Back Pages, Chris. Really? When when he was uh, yeah, when he was writing about you know chess, blues and stuff in the early sixties. Record so mirror, yeah. Record mirror, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Wow. <laughs> so, and when I went in, I said, "Listen, I saw this band last night. I thought they were really, really great." But I said, I d- "I'm just not happy with their, their 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 name. So, can you come up with a name?" Because Guy Stevens was super creative, and uh, I thought he would come up with a name. I said, "But you've got to come up with it soon because they're coming to meet me around twelve o'clock today." So, when the band came in to see me. We started chatting and everything, and I said, well, there's, there's just one thing that you know I'm concerned about, and that, that's, that's the name of the band. So Andy Fraser, you know, he spoke out first. Well, he spoke out always first. He said, well, what name have you got? And I said, well, I haven't really got one yet, but Guy Stevens is with me, and he's around. He's going to come in in a half hour or something like that. And when he comes in, I'll tell you. So we continued the meeting, everything, and then Guy Stevens came in, and I said, I'll introduce Guy, introduce him. <laughs> Andy Fraser says, so I understand you've got a, a, a name for us. And Guy said, yes. He said, well, what is it? The Heavy Metal Kids. Uh-huh. And he, he just said, well, he look, looked back at me and he said, well, if you want to sign us, our name is free. Yeah. Huh. Little fuckers. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. That's absolutely wonderful. Listen, I was born by the river. Just like this river, I've been moving ever since. So the island story, in a sense, comes sort of full circle back to reggae jimmy cliff leaves you we haven't really been able to talk about jimmy just don't have enough time but he he leaves and into your 
offices in Basing Street in Notting Hill walk the whalers, who you'd crossed their path, obviously, back in Jamaica, and you were well aware of who they were. But they come in to see you, and you talk in the book about bunnies. You say bunny was... (laughs) You describe Bunny's quite suspicious. And his suspicion of the business was not unwarranted. Yet here they were in my office, acting on Bunny's belief that I owed them, waiting to see what I could offer them. So I thought this would be a good moment to play the first clip from the week's new audio interview, which is with Bunny. Bunny Whaler from 1988, this interview is. So it's just a short clip that slightly ties in with this theme. Okay, great. Although I know my principles sometimes is slightly different from the principles of the entertainment world, uh, I know I have to adjust myself as much as I can but also I expect the world to adjust itself also to me, you know, in, in, in the way we can. So. so if you want the big tree, you are a small Yeah, I expect to expect the world to adjust itself to me. I love that. I mean, obviously, we we could talk forever about Bob Marley. We we are in this context quite interested in in Bunny and obviously Peter Tosh. And I'm just your recall of that first meeting. I mean, in the book you talk about how you saw what you could do for them and what they might need to do, how they might need to change in order to become what they did indeed become. So tell us how you remember those three young men coming into your office in Basing Street. Well, they came in and they were strong. Mm-hmm. They sat down, three of them, you know, and in, in I, I had a little, this is a Basing Street. My office there was, I had a round table with three or four people sitting at it. And then in the other half of the room, there was a little area where you could sit down and, you know, and chat. So I was talking with them and I asked them, what is it that they were really aiming at? What were they after? What do they want to do? They said, well, we're really aiming on getting on American black radio. And I perked up too quickly, really. And I said, you haven't got a hope. And that knocked back a bit. And they said, why? And And I said, well... American Black Radio is not interested in reggae music. They're not interested in African music. They're interested in, you know, American music. Remember, this was at least 10 years before hip-hop started, or at least eight years. So we talked a bit, and they were not happy. I, I, I was stupid what I'd said, how I'd said it, and everything. It came out too fast and things. So the, it, the meeting didn't really go that great. It went well enough in that I was said I was certainly prepared to finance your return back to Jamaica and everything. I would do that, and I'd love if you could you know do a record for me when you get back there, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So that's how it ended that meeting. All right. And then the next day, Bob came in on his own. He came in to sort of collect the, the amount of money. I can't remember how much it was. I, I just spoke with him and spent some time talking and everything. And I remember saying to him, you know, I think 
you can do, can do really well because what I explained, what I said to him was that I felt that they really needed to reposition themselves like a sort of black rock act so that you could reach the sort of college kids globally, both in America, etc., etc. So he sort of kind of agreed with it. And the other two, I've got the, the timing of what I'm just telling you has gone a little bit off because what I just said about the rock and roll thing was when the other two guys were there too. Okay. So the other two weren't too happy with me at that time anyhow because Bob had sort of more, I think, picked up what I'd been talking about in general rather than they had. So I think I think before they even left, they felt that, uh, how can I say, that maybe I'd sort of interfered with their with what they were doing as it were, what, what their trip was. Mm. So it was the next day that Bob came in and I gave him the finance and everything else. Like, and I told him then, I said, you know something, we'll never have a picture taken together. And he said, why not? And I said, no, never mind, we never will. <laughs> you did, though. There are pictures of you with Bob, of course, aren't there? Only one. Only one. What, oh, the really? one that, yes. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing, isn't it? I wanted to just just interject here to say that the featured writer – on Rock's Back Pages this week will be Rob Partridge, who, of course, became oh, wow. yeah, the late, great Rob, yes. who you, you write about in, in the book, touchingly, and he became head of press in 1977. But in 1973, he was writing for Melody Maker, and he wrote a piece called Reggae, The Hits You Never Hear. And interestingly towards i mean obviously he talks about trojan and you and obviously you were in partnership with trojan for a bit but that was over at this point anyway he says ireland of course has pumped a fortune in reggae terms into bob marley and the whalers when they released catch a fire earlier this year ireland were beginning one of the most adventurous experiments in reggae marketing and David Betteridge, who was your managing director at that point, says, we're only guessing at how to break an artist and only time will tell. Well, so it's on the cusp of Bob Marley and the Whalers becoming, you know, the huge act that they did become. So it's really interesting to read that. Sort of question about, that, you know, Burn and Catch a Fire established the idea of them as a band to a white audience but how important was the live album recorded in 75 at the lyceum and the live version of no woman no cry because from my memory that was the moment that they really broke through to a white audience well i'll tell you how that happened like that because about three months before the show maybe not three months maybe a couple mm -hmm. of months before the show in in london they played at a club in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of excitement. The sort of new thing of this Jamaican band had spread around in Los Angeles. And it was a really hot sort of little gig to go to. Mm -hmm. And I remember very well because the first 20 minutes of it, I thought I was going to have a heart attack because firstly, the band were a little late. Then when they got there, they went on stage and they rehearsed. <laughs> when I said they rehearsed, they were literally, you know, the drummer was rehearsing and the guitarist was rehearsing. And 
but Bob was kind of leading it and Bob wouldn't start a song. <laughs> and it just, it, it really went on for about 10 minutes. And I thought, I can't believe this. <laughs> this is, this is, this is because everybody was there, you know, when I say everybody, anybody who was anybody really interested in anything fresh like that was there. Bob was doing this all the time. But, and while he was doing that, he had his back to the audience. And then eventually he turned around <laughs> and started. And it was incredible because when he turned around and started, it like took off. And then later during the show, when he di did the song, No Woman, No Cry, there was on the right-hand side of the club in the distance people were singing the words. I thought, this is fantastic. We've got to do a live show. And that night I rang London and we made a deal with the Rolling Stones mobile. That's how that started. Fantastic. Wonderful. Amazing. Absolutely wonderful. I thought it might be just interesting to hear the second Bunny Whaler clip because that will lead to a brief discussion of Compass Point Studios, Chris. So, uh, Jasper, if we could hear clip number two. Politics 20 years ago was, in Jamaica, was uh, a thing of development where the politicians of those times... Their ideals were totally different from these politicians of this time, you know. They, they, they weren't looking for making money or coming out of politics with rich people or whatever. They were contributing from themselves as much as they could to make a better nation out of Jamaicans. And they did a good job in their times because they rallied the people more in a unified motion other than segregated motion by just going to the polls quietly and voting for whoever you think you know would be the person you suited for whatever and the campaigns were totally different because people would pass each other on the streets different parties going east parties going west and they would pass soldier to soldier but without any problems <laughs> does that just sort of resonate with you, Chris, in terms of how politics changed in Jamaica and how how gun violence started to become, you know, an increasing factor in Jamaican life and may in fact have influenced you to build your dream studio in the Bahamas rather than on the island that you loved so dearly? Well, now that was when I did the studio in the Bahamas. That was quite a few years later, if I remember right. <laughs> But yes, the answer is yes. You know, I wouldn't have booked it there because firstly, there were studios there already, good studios there. And Bob, I think, and you know my timing may be off, but I'm pretty sure Bob had built his studio in Kingston at that time. The Tough Gong studio, yes. Yeah. But you, I suppose the point I'm trying to make is you could have built Compass Point, as it were, 
Uh, it wouldn't have been called that, but you could have built that in Jamaica. So what in the end persuaded you to build it in the Bahamas? Gosh, I can't remember at all. You would think one should remember that. I cannot remember at all because there was no music in the Bahamas in those days. No. So actually, so much, so much great music came out of that studio. I mean, I, yes. I think, I think particularly for the three of us is Grace Jones's stuff with the marvelous Sly and Robbie on rhythm section. Yeah, just extraordinary music. I mean, nineteen eighty one curiously been one of the great years for pop music, even though everyone else seems to have forgotten it now. But there was so many great records came out. I remember where I was, where I was working as a porter at the BBC, and when Private Lives came on the radio. And Sly Dunbar did this roll around the kit and came down on the second beat of the following bar. We'd mimic it. We'd all sort of be miming his drum <laughs> Yeah, that sound was absolutely fantastic. One of the great studios, one of the great sounds. And you write about how, I think you sort of imply that, you know, hearing Sly and Robbie playing with Black Uhuru, you sort of suddenly got this idea that you could give, Grace Jones, this sort of makeover by having her work with Sly and Robbie. So you brought her out of that kind of disco period in New York into this sort of into this compass point nightclubbing era. And and what a you know, she became one of defining island artists through that process. I would say. Well, it's it's definitely I think the best recording I ever had anything to do with. Wow, I really think so because it was again. By chance a lot, you know, we put together the, the band. And I, I just, I mean, I can tell you the, the, the Grace story, if, if that helps a little bit, and unless you know it already. I mean, you know, she, she was really a, a, a fashion person in New York at that time. And Nick Cohn, I was in New York, and he mentioned to me, he said, you know, there's this black Jamaican girl, she's stunningly beautiful. She's in the fashion world. You should really meet her. The day after or the day after that, I remember opening a magazine and there there was that picture, that sort of famous picture of her standing on one leg and plugged into the electricity, I remember. So I tracked her down. She was desperate to do a record and she'd already talked the fashion people that she was working with. She'd already talked them into financing her album. And they were not in the music business at all. And they'd asked, I think, how much it would be. And she said, oh, all right, about $20,000. That's all it would be cost. However, it had already squeezed itself up to about thirty or $40,000. By the time that I met her, I said, well, I'd, I'd love to, you know, hear her record. So they played the record. She wasn't there when they played it. It was the record called Portfolio, the first album she put out. Yeah. And the first four minutes of the record is a drum machine. That's all you hear. Sort of, it was like another one of those things. And I can't believe this. Where we are? What are we doing here now? This to make make no sense. <laughs> How can you possibly make a record? I mean, you really by four minutes, or just a drum machine, and then finally her voice comes in. And when her voice comes in, it's just blew my mind. I thought, my God, this is incredible. And then we put the record out and it did pretty well. And then the one after that did half as well. And the one after that did half as well as that. 
And that's when I decided I wanted to have a try to see if one could make her more integrated into Jamaica because she was pretty much, though she's Jamaican, born and bred in Jamaica, she was a New Yorker in the fashion thing. Yeah. So I just really took a pretty big risk, I guess, and contacted Sly and Robbie, the other percussion players, etc. I think five overall from Jamaica. And then I contacted this guy called Wally Badaru, who had just made a record out of France, which had been, become a huge hit. I'd never heard of him before, but the record was a huge hit. And then it was after Marianne Faithful had done this album and Barry Reynolds had played on the record, and I thought I'd pick Barry Reynolds. So I brought them all down to Compass Point. Yes. But I wasn't there when they arrived, and when they arrived... Everybody had no idea what was happening anywhere. It wasn't, you know, the, the, the Sly and Robbie, particular Robbie, you know, Robbie was a tough guy <laughs> and Robbie was, you know, not particularly friendly to anybody initially yeah. at first and everything. And I thought, you know, and then I eventually arrived and then, and there was this one, this incredible picture that Grace's husband had done. And it's a picture of her looking like a GI. You know, it's a black and white picture, big black, where she's sitting and looking straight at you, it's kind of scary-wise. <laughs> and I thought, well, this picture is powerful. So I took, I had the picture blown up, and I took it down, and I put it in the studio, and I told everybody, this record has got to sound like that picture. <laughs> Very good. That is brilliant. I love that. Love and that. it did. And it did. Fantastic. And it did. And I, and I really want to add that the engineer who produced the record was a, an absolute genius. And he did many more records with us and then very sadly had a car crash in the Bahamas and died. Alex Sadkin? Alex Sadkin, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 No, it's marvellous, towards the end of these things is when did you sell Ireland? Was it Phonogram you sold Ireland to? It was the Phonogram, yes. How did you feel? I mean, because you stayed with the company for a bit, didn't you, afterwards, but then you, you withdrew. Yeah. How did that feel to you as a process? Well, it wasn't really something that I was thrilled about. Let's put it that way. It's just that I had gone into something. One evening I went back with my girlfriend into the apartment in New York where I was living at that time and it switched on the radio and the record that was coming out of it was one of the best sounding records ever with the most, an incredible drummer to such a degree that I was obsessed and I had to find out who was this drummer, where was it coming from. And the drummer was from Washington, D.C., and the music was from Washington, D.C. And I went down to check it out, and there were three or four different bands, and in a, in a big, big club, you know, it was wild. It was wild. It was go-go music. It was go-go music. Yeah. And that, and that was it. And I thought my biggest mistake was, but I thought, well, you know something? 
one can do something with this. We can do something if I do a movie with this, mm -hmm. because this is just after The Harder They Come, where The Harder They Come is really what boosted everything up. And so I thought one can do that again. And I was going to do it with the, and partner it with Jeremy Thomas, one of my best friends and a brilliant movie producer. He said, well, he would love to, but he said he can't guarantee because he's been waiting for the film that he was going to be working on, which was called The Last Emperor. Oh, right, yeah. And he was waiting for that to happen, waiting for that to happen. And, you know, that's one of the killer things in the movie business. You're waiting and waiting and waiting. Anyhow, so I didn't want to wait, and I wanted to get started. But just as one started, boom, it suddenly he got the go-ahead for The Last Emperor. So I had nobody to work with making a movie because I knew nothing about making a movie. And what tends to happen with making a movie, when something goes a bit bad, you throw more money at it. And basically that's what happened. Then we got into financial trouble and right. we weren't able to pay you to the royalties, etc. And that was that. Right. You mentioned you too, Chris, and we can't really talk about Ireland without talking about you too. So there's just a bit where you, you say, I was at Compass Point in the spring of 1980 when Rob Partridge first told me about you too. A former Melody Maker journalist, he had good instincts for what was happening and new scenes. And he called me up and said, I think there is a band you will really like. So you went to see them at the Half Moon in Hearn Hill in June 1980. And this is from the book, whether it's your words of filtered through Paul Morley or, or not. It's amusing to read. Bono was already clambering over the equipment and up the lighting rig as though he were trying to reach out to the back of a vast venue and even further. And I know how small the half, half moon is, by the <laughs> way. Uh, and you say this was either complete delusional wishful thinking or sheer audacious magnetism. And, well, <laughs> it obviously was the latter. One thing that I, interests me about you two is how it knits together with the island story. The fact that they surprised you, I think, to somebody by saying they wanted to do their third album with Brian Eno, who was already a kind of island legend from his Roxy yeah. Music years. And they made an album that was very different from the previous two, sonically much more interesting and, and ambient. Were you uneasy about you two working with Eno and or were you delighted by the results? I was delighted by the result and also by that time I didn't feel the music the first time I saw them but I knew they were going to be huge I knew they were going to be huge because of their own force of energy and also equally important that they had a proper sensible honourable classy manager somebody who was really serious about it because, you know, a, a lot of people would be manager and stuff, that, but what are they really doing sometimes? You know, they don't really do what they should be doing. But where, where, when the, in their case, they, they had somebody who was devoted to what they were doing and, and guided them through their career. Yes. 
Absolutely. The great Paul McGuinness. So you two obviously changed everything for, for Ireland, didn't it? And, and, and you talk yes. about how sometimes, it, you know, be careful what you wish for, because when the money starts pouring in, it actually create, can create more problems than it, than it solves, right? And mm-hmm. Jasper, you had a question I know you wanted to ask. I was just, I'm interested in, I mean, you talked earlier about liking jazz and in the book, there's this wonderful anecdote you tell about meeting Miles Davis and kind of getting to know him. And about the time you asked him why he plays so many bad notes, yes. <laughs> which I just love. And I mean, I love his response as well, which was to say that he tries to play what he hears in his head, not what he can already play, which I think is a great answer to that. That's right. That's but right. jazz isn't something that's like particularly associated with Ireland. And I was wondering whether there were moments when you wanted to put out jazz records or you were tempted to pursue that at all, or, or if it was just something you felt was like, oh, well, you enjoy jazz and it's separate. Well, Ernest Wranglin, the Jamaican guitarist, He's somebody I, I, I've mm. done some records with. Yes. And we did, we did some records with um, a really, really good uh, English jazz musician. Really, really good. I'm, I can't remember. Damn. Sorry. <laughs> There's just one more name I wanted to mention because you because the book is beautiful on this is 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 Tom Waits. Yes. And I remember interviewing you for a Tom Waits book that I wrote and you described how you heard he was out of contract that he wanted to leave Electra Asylum. And there's this wonderful quote where you 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 fly to LA to meet him and Kathleen his wife with with Lionel Conway and you know out of that comes the magnificent swordfish trombones and then you say years later i was talking with tom about hit records and commercial success he mentioned someone who'd noted to him how strange it was that he'd never had a hit single well tom replied i've had a hit life (laughs) (laughs) i just think (laughs) it's such a and in a way, that's the spirit of Ireland, isn't it? I mean, you have had many. Absolutely. You, you've had your cake and you've eaten it because you have had many, many hits, huge success. But in the end, Chris, I think what we would all feel about you is that you've had a wonderful life. You've had a hit life. You've enjoyed it. It hasn't just been about money and record sales. You've been, no. able, to, you've been able to enjoy your passion. Absolutely. Absolutely. I've been really lucky. I would have to say blessed. (laughs) Really. I live about 10 minutes walk from Basing Street. Every time I walk down it, I genuflect towards that magnificent old building. (laughs) Now, now of course, being turned into flats for rich people. (laughs) Luxury flats. (laughs) Yes, of course. Are you flying back to Jamaica tomorrow or flying elsewhere? Flying to New York first. New York first. Okay. And then on? And home. then on to Jamaica. What is so? I mean, what is home for a sort of jet set nomad like yourself? What what, what is home right now? Jamaica. Jamaica is always home, isn't it? Well, yeah. bon voyage. Mm-hmm. Have a safe trip home. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a, a great honour. Uh, well, thank you. It's been fun. Wonderful. <laughs> yeah. So we, right. we will hear one more clip as we go out from. Bunny Whaler, when he talks about the state of reggae in 1988. Have you heard the album of Bunny Whaler? 
called Black Heart Man. Oh, oh yes. Oh, listened yes. to it yesterday. Yes. Fantastic. Masterpiece. Amazing. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I mean, you know, I think Bunny's music has been obviously somewhat overshadowed by the Whalers and Bob Marley, but he made some extraordinary records, including that tribute album, which was not on Ireland, but it's rather wonderful. And Bunny Whaler Sings the Whalers is a, is a gorgeous record too, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Wonderful singer, beautiful voice. And yeah. a fascinating, rather contrary individual, perhaps we should yeah. say. Mysterious, very <laughs> mysterious. Mysterious Bonnie. <laughs> Thank you again so yes, much for thank joining us. Thank you so much. Thank you, enjoyed it. Goodbye, everyone. Bye. Bye. Chicken black heart man, children. I said, don't go near him. Chicken black heart man. What would you say about the state of reggae in general? Well, at the moment, um, there's that question that people feel that reggae is been on the reverse. In the sense, since Mark passed and all that, and we have this DJ business coming to the picture, which really hasn't been doing any credit for the music, the reggae music that, that paved the way. So... Yes, I, it's, 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 it's in the air, you know, people are sensitive to know what's happening and feel that, especially the people that are lovers of reggae, you know, they don't want to, to spoil the taste that's been really put in their mouths and whatever. So, yes, it's, it's, it's really a kind of nervous situation. But then I don't want the reggae people to give up hope in any way, because, you know, because... There's a foundation that has been laid that I think is strong enough to maintain whatever and will always be the foundation. So all we have to do is to be careful what kind of decorations, what kind of building we put on the foundation. That was Bunny Whaler in conversation with Mark Sinker in 1988, concluding this week's Rocks Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest Chris Blackwell. His autobiography, The Islander, is published by 9-8 Books and available now from all good bookshops. The hosts were Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Muris and Bowie. The Rocks Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com. Hear me when I say now, it's the black heart man, who become the wonder of the city. It's the black heart man, Maryland sports fans, there's only one sports book in the great state of Maryland with over 50 years experience booking bets and supporting customers. Betfred Sportsbook at Long Shots is now open and is the only sports book in Frederick offering cash betting on football, basketball, world soccer, and more. Visit the Betfred Sportsbook at I-270 and MD-85 in Frederick, right next to Long Shots Off-Track Betting. Go to BetfredSports.com for more information and your chance to win exclusive merchandise. Must be 21 or older. Play responsibly. For help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. And now, another no-brainer money-saving tip from Progressive. That doesn't sound good. Paper shredder's jammed, but I think I... fixed it. Oh, well, try shredding these $50 bills, then. Seems like it's working. Mm, better try another 400 bucks. Stop.
Instead of using money, use regular paper. And here's a better tip from Progressive on how not to waste money. Don't pay too much for car insurance. Drivers who switch and save could save hundreds. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Potential savings will vary. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 